Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team, for leading us to the King today. It's good to be with you. We're in uh, 1 Samuel, a book in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 2, the second part of that. This is a, um, one of these fun passages of Scripture that when you're a pastor, you're tempted to maybe skip ahead a chapter or two. This is a story of sin and judgment. So if you came fired up to hear about some sin and judgment today, you're in the right place. Sometimes you need to know the bad news in order to get to the good news, right? And, you know, there's a question that people will ask of God's Word. Usually you'll hear it like this. Is this relevant? Is the Bible relevant to my marriage struggles? Does the Bible have anything relevant to, say, speaking to parenting? Speaking to issues that we deal with today. The question of relevance. But actually, beneath that question of relevance is the question of authority. Is God's Word authoritative? Does God have the permission to speak to the situations that you and I wrestle with? That's the real question when someone says relevance. They're actually asking, do I get to determine the path that I go down or does God have something to say about it? Well, today that's really at the heart of the issue that we're going to see here as we turn to the story of Eli and his sons on the one hand in contrast to Samuel, young Samuel in the temple on the other hand. We met Samuel over the last couple of weeks. His mother prayed a prayer and said, God, if you will bless me with a son, I will give him to you. I will devote him to you all the days of his life. And she made good on that promise. And so now we're seeing Samuel, his call, God speaking to him, confirming plans that he has for his future, using him as a mouthpiece to the nation of Israel. But really, the picture of a young man who hears God's voice, who lives not for his own desires and needs, but lives to hear the Word of God and to faithfully proclaim that, on the one hand, and on the other hand, we're going to meet the sons of Eli and see what that other path looks like, that path that chooses to say God is not authoritative. God's Word is not relevant to my life. I have a plan. I have an agenda. I'm the ruler of my own destiny. We're going to look at those two possibilities today. Could I ask if the house lights could maybe be a little bit brighter here just so that you guys are able to read the fine print in your Bibles there? That'd be awesome. Or maybe they're not working today. Get your, get your cell phone out. Illuminate that text however you need to. We'll have it up on the screen as well. But let's read together here beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. There's a lot contained in that first verse. We were looking at this with the men's coffee gang on Wednesday morning. What, you know, there were a couple different uh, phrases used there. In Hebrew, it's actually sons of Belial is, the, is the, uh, the phrase that's used. That's used a few times in the Old Testament. I think there's 15 occurrences of that phrase. Sons of Belial, it, it just means wicked, self-centered, evil, serving really the devil instead of the Lord. And goes right along with that, they did not know the Lord. Now, who, are, who is Eli? Well, he's the priest of the temple there in Shiloh. Descendant of Aaron, a Levite, whose job was to be a priest of God's people, to be the one who brings messages from God to his people, who faithfully lives out that covenant relationship with the Lord, where God gives blessings and we give obedience, and there's joy in sharing in God's plan and his mission Eli's own sons, we find out right here, are worthless men who do not know the Lord. 
the, the mantle of priesthood is upon them. They're a descendant of that Levitical line, and this is the condition that we have for God's people. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. There's a lot going on here that if you don't know your Old Testament, you're going to be scratching your head. Although there's a lot that just you know, rings true today, right? How many of you are not vegetarians or vegans? Anyone else here besides me? Okay. Now, if you are a vegetarian or vegan, just you know, bear with us here. We'll explain a little bit how this works. So, you know, you don't want that tough boiled piece of meat with no flavor in it, right? You want a nice tender roast with some fat marbled in there. That's what gives it the good flavor. This is what the priests are saying. They're, they're, they're observing the, the sacrificial uh, animals that are coming to the temple, and they're saying, you know, we don't want that meat to be boiled. We don't want all the fat uh, boiled off of that. We'll take that meat while it's raw so we can roast it for ourselves and eat it. Why is that a problem? Well, there's a couple of passages I'll just point you to as examples. You go back and read Leviticus, read Deuteronomy. God is very particular about how he receives worship. God is very particular about what it is to glorify him, to sacrifice to him. And he says to obey is better than sacrifice. So God's desire is that we come to him with that humility, that obedience, that listening posture that says, God, you get to be in control. You are authoritative. Your word is relevant because my life is all about bringing glory to you. And so as one example of why this practice was a problem there in Shiloh, you could read in Leviticus chapter 7 on your own. uh, Turn to that when you get home today and do a little bit of studying there. What was it like to live under the sacrificial system? Well, Leviticus 7 verse 31 talking about the peace offerings the Mosaic Law, God's instructions for worship and faithfulness, says this, The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be for Aaron and his sons. The priests, Aaron and his sons, the priests, the Levites. So there, there, there is provision there for the priests. Their practical needs are to be met. They're to have food to eat for them and their families. But God's very clear. The fat, you don't eat the fat. The fat you burn and leave at the altar, that's part of the sacrifice. After the fat has been burned, then you can take portions for yourself and for your family. Pretty clear instructions there in Leviticus. If you are a descendant of Aaron, if you're a priest charged with hearing the word of God and passing that on to the people, you've read Leviticus 7. There's no ambiguity about it. It's in black and white. 
It's very clear that you know what the instructions are for covenant faithfulness. And yet here we have the sons of Eli who are saying, no, wait a minute. Leave the fat there. We'd like to have a barbecue at our, at our priest's home over here. So you guys just stop with your sacrifice and give us that raw meat for ourselves. Another example would be in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Very explicit, clear instructions to the priests and to the rest of the people and providing for the needs of the priests. Verse 3, And this shall be the priests due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. God's very explicit even about what cuts of steak are to be used for the priests. And yet, here we have an example of priests knowing their Old Testaments, knowing the Mosaic Law, choosing to violate that and go after their own appetites instead. The problem with sin is that even if you're able to justify that little sin in your own mind, sin will take you even further. Sin will take you further than that first decision you made to just kind of, you know, we're just going to take a little extra cut of meat. I know God said this, but is that really relevant today? Is God's Word truly authoritative? I mean, we've been wasting all this perfectly good steak for generations, and it's so easy to justify sin. But once you begin down that slippery slope of compromise, the nature of sin is to draw you further in, to take it to that next level. It's interesting that in this passage that we've read, we haven't really heard much about Eli. We've just heard about Eli's sons. Where was Eli as this practice was happening? Where was Eli when his sons were sticking that three-pronged fork into every pot and dish that was used to sacrifice to the one true Creator God and they're taking for themselves sacrificial meat that was to be given to God, violating the terms of the Mosaic Law? Where was Eli? Well, we have little clues and, and glimmers of what Eli was up to, where he was in this practice. Uh, skipping ahead to a couple passages just to answer that question. In verse 29, we're going to read about God's now judgment delivered to Eli. Verse 29 of chapter 2, God says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? So we have God now accusing Eli of being a part of the very same practice. It's not just the sons who've been fattening up on the extra good uh, sacrificial meat that was to be given to God. In fact, At the very end of Eli's life, truly his legacy, the last thing we hear about Eli is a chapter ahead, uh, two chapters ahead in chapter 4. We learn this about Eli in verse 18. As soon as Eli heard about the ark of God, as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. That's his epitaph. Eli's sin became his legacy. That's what he's known as. It's one of these stories that, unless you know the true story behind it, it does seem somewhat humorous to have that in the Bible. He fell over and broke his neck as an old man because he was old and heavy, but really, why is he heavy? It's because he's been eating the sacrificial 
meat that was brought to be given to God, to revere God, the authoritative God, the relevant God, the God who created every man, woman, and children, who has the permission to speak into our lives, to tell us who we are, to tell us who we're created to be, what we're to do with our time, how we're to find significance and meaning. And yet this slippery path of sin, which began by justifying, taking some choice cuts of meat for oneself, now ends up being Eli's legacy. And he's known forever, even documented 3,000 years later. We know Eli as the guy who ate so much sacrificial meat that he ended up obese at the end of his life, fell off a chair and broke his neck. That's his legacy. Now this is not just a story of some priests way back then who sinned. This is a story for all of God's people. It's a caution. It's a warning for the people of Eli and Samuel's day and for those of us living right here today. A caution and a warning to say, hear the voice of God. Listen to Him. Submit to Him. Turn now from sin. Don't begin to justify that sin that we've said, well, this is just a small sin. Who does it really hurt? just a little appetite that I'm feeding, something I really enjoy. God takes sin very seriously. And that sin, which starts out small, will continue to grow. That sin that just gets us to cross one line will pull us deeper and further in until it begins to ripple out and affect even relationships with others. So this first sin that we've seen is really a sin against God. It's a sin against the God who commanded and gave very explicit instructions about how worship was to be conducted. And really now the the young men, Eli's sons, are sinning against God in this story. We're going to see how that sin leads them further in. But now interwoven in this story of sin and judgment, there's a story of faithfulness, obedience, and blessing. So we get a little verse right here in 21. Sorry, 18 through 21. In contrast to Eli's sons, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy clothed with a linen ephod. What's that? It's a garment that the priests wear. So as a young boy, he's already entering into that priestly job of being the one who stands between God and the people, who brings God's word to the people. An example of faithfulness in contrast to Eli's sons. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. What a contrast to Eli's sons. He's growing in all the right ways. Not growing fat by nurturing his own appetites to a dangerous level, but instead growing in the presence of the Lord. Remaining in God's presence. Ministering before the Lord. That means serving. That means using the gifts that God has given him to bless and serve. An example of faithfulness. Coming to God and saying, God, who have you created me to be? What have you created me to do? You're the supreme authority in my life. You're the king. I yield to you. What is your word? Speak to me, Lord. 
And so Samuel is that faithful priest of the Lord. Now there's a verse in the New Testament that takes that priesthood and it applies it to every one of us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. There's a job God has for each of us. It's the same job He had for the priests in the Old Testament. It's the same job He had for His elect people in the Old Testament, the ones that He chose and set apart and said, you are going to be blessed so that you can be a blessing to every tongue, tribe, and nation. Through you, every nation of the earth will be blessed. That same mantle of blessing and responsibility is on our shoulders today. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy generation to proclaim the excellencies of God, His glory, His majesty. And down that path of serving Him and remaining in His presence, that's where life and joy and growth and significance is found. But if we choose that path of sin, of setting ourselves up to be gods, sin will take you further than you want to go. So we didn't hear Eli correcting the deeds that we just read about in regards to the meat that was sacrificed. But now we do hear Eli speaking up as this sin takes a darker turn and it goes deeper and it begins to affect relationships in God's, among God's people. Verse 22, Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. There's judgment coming for sin. Eli's sons, though explicitly warned by their father about this path that they're being led down by sin, drawn deeper and deeper into sin, now affecting not just the sacrificial meat brought, but also the young women that are there serving before the Lord, them as individuals, their families, a sin that's now affecting not just that relationship with God, but as sin always does, it affects relationships with others as well. And their dad comes in and confronts them on this, actually speaks some truth. Although he's been participating in the first sin, he's hearing the rumors, he's hearing the people talking, there's a reputation on the line, and now he comes and some of what he says is true to his sons, and he cautions them and he warns them. He says, I've been hearing bad reports about what you're doing. This is a sin against God. He recognizes that the sin with the young women serving at the temple is not purely a sin against another human, but it's really a sin against God by violating His creatures, His creation. These young women who are there serving, turning them into objects once again for their own appetites, harming them. And He cautions them sternly, and yet they will not repent. What does does it mean to repent? 
to turn. You're going in one direction, you repent, you go in the other direction. And that's really a call to repentance that we're hearing here from Eli. An opportunity to have your sin really laid out before you. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is just. And there will be times as you have justified that small sin and taken just that small step down that slippery path of sin that God will graciously allow you to be found out, allow you to be confronted, allow your own sin to be held right up in front of your face. It's never fun. I wouldn't want to be Eli's sons on that day when dad came and said, boys, there's a serious problem. And yet that, that is a gracious opportunity for you to fess up, own up, to take that opportunity and say, I knew that what I was doing as I was being sucked further into sin, I knew it was wrong. I knew that I had justified those decisions and actions. I knew that I had begun to say that God's word is not relevant to my situation in my life, that he has no right to tell me what to do or what not to do. He's not authoritative. And yet as I was on that path of sin, I found there was no joy. And it sucked me deeper in and further in. And I pray that God allows you to feel the pain that Eli's sons did when you're on that path of sin, that you're confronted by someone who loves you enough to point out your sin, but to do it in love and give you an opportunity to hear God's word and to repent and turn and say, God, I confess my sins to you. 1 John Chapter 1 has a beautiful verse, a beautiful word for us on this message. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He's a faithful God. He's a forgiving God. He's a merciful God. Hiding from him is neither necessary nor wise. He sees everything. Everything is open and exposed, naked and defenseless before him to whom we must give an account of ourselves. So, you know, we may fool one another, keep up that facade, yet we'll never fool him because he looks right into our hearts. He knows our intentions, our thoughts. He knows the secret hidden sin. And yet he still loves us. And yet he still sends his son Jesus. While we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. And it's his shed blood that forgives us of our sins, cleanses us, of all unrighteousness, and allows us to make that turn of repentance. It's not an action that we do on our own, right? You know, Eli's sons had no more ability to stop taking that meat and to stop lusting after the women in the temple than any one of you or I do have that power and ability in our own strength to clean ourselves up, walk that straight path that we've been setting New Year's resolutions on every year. Let's face it. It's a hopeless situation apart from the power of God in our lives. The power of Jesus to redeem, deliver, cleanse, free from sin, and then to give us the ability to walk in a new way. Hearing, listening, submitting, yielding, saying, God, you are authoritative. I submit to you as the King and as the Lord. So these sins against God and sins against man. For Eli, he really condones the one but then rebukes the other. 
Actually, he, you know, even though he said that sins of man can be forgiven, or sins against man can be forgiven by God, but sins against God cannot, the one that he was committing was actually more directly a sin against God. He's taking that sacrificial meat that God had given some clear instructions, and he's saying, no, I'm going to take and feed my own appetites here. There was a, a horrific news story this last week from Pennsylvania. 300 clergy, over 1,000 children abused over a period of 70 years. We hear a news story like this, and it's very clear proof that this problem still exists today, that if we excuse a little bit of sin, sin will take us further in, further than we ever intended to go. And it ripples out. Those sins against God affect our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Sins against one another affect our relationship with God. There's no separating the two. There's no such thing as a private sin. And Eli's sons, though they had the, the warnings and the cautions of their dad, though they had this confrontation, there's no evidence of repentance. Once again, we see this verse of contrast here at the end of this passage, verse 26. Now, the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Very similar verse is spoken of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and man. Jesus is the exact perfect picture of a faithful priest, of the one who mediates between God and man. He comes and denies himself. He comes and lives sacrificially to glorify God and to bless and serve others. He gets down on his hands and knees with his disciples and begins to wash their feet and says, what you're seeing me do, this is what you are to do as well. He, of himself, says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. Jesus is that perfect picture of living by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Saying, God, your word is not only relevant, it is authoritative. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was betrayed, he prays a prayer and says, God, if there's any other way, if there's a plan B, let this cup pass. But not my will, but your will be done. And so he exemplifies that picture of what it is to submit to God, to his authority, to his leading. He lives a sinless life. He was tempted in all the same ways that we are, yet without sin. And Samuel really is a preview of what Jesus is to be. At this early, in his early years here, Samuel is living that path of faithfulness, listening to God, following after him, growing, growing in favor with both the Lord and with man. So there is hope mixed in with this story of sin and judgment. There is that possibility of living in a way that's submitted to God and each day being transformed and being more useful to God and for His purposes. That's where joy is found. You know, we think that by feeding those appetites that we have, it will bring lasting satisfaction. And yet we always come up empty. Whether it's an appetite for possessions, for relationships, for status, for pleasure, 
Those hungers and appetites, they're not bad in and of themselves. They're created by God. And yet those appetites rise to the level of being the gods of our lives, the idols that we worship. And we begin to feed those appetites. That's what sin is. It's when we take the one true God who is to receive all glory, all praise, who, to whom all of our appetites are to be directed. We desire him above all else. And then to distort that and twist it and pervert it and deflect our praise and our worship and our glory toward these appetites that don't last and really don't bring lasting satisfaction. The good news is that God is drawing us to himself. And he uses a young man like Samuel, just as he will, young and old here today who come to him and say, God, we're going to remain in your presence, listening to you, submitted to you, desiring to experience that true depth of joy that comes in following the path that you have set for us. Sin takes us further than we want to go. It also keeps us longer than we want to stay. You know, a lot of times we'll think and say, well, I, I, you know, next week I'm going to turn a corner. Next, you know, next year is when I'm going to stop going down this path and go on a path that God's calling me to until we find out that our leg is stuck in a gigantic bear trap chained to a rock and there's no escape. And this is the, the proclamation of judgment that now comes to Eli at the end of chapter 2 here. Verse 27, There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever, but now... The Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. 
man, that's not a fun passage. You know, the fear I have is that some, some of us enjoy reading a passage like that when it's directed to someone else. Particularly when it's directed towards someone else in leadership who has just crashed and burned royally. That we take some guilty pleasure in that. Like, hey, they got what was coming. And miss the point of this whole passage of judgment to all of God's people. It's a warning. It's a caution. Take a look in that mirror. What the sons of Eli did, we are each capable of. And maybe your sin has, you've seen the effects of that rippling out and harming others. Maybe you've been one who's been mistreated and abused in a way that's left a mark on your heart and on your mind, on your body. And if that's the case, the good news is that there is a gracious God who comes to redeem, to cleanse, to turn those scars into something beautiful that can be a blessing. And even in this message where we don't hear, we don't hear Eli's response, we do get a glimpse as we turn to chapter 4 uh, that, that he, he's very aware the message has come through loud and clear. And the day that the Philistines capture the ark of God, he's knowing that this is the day that the bad news is coming. So he is submitted to God's will, and yet really there's no evidence of repentance in his life either. We hear no response from Eli in this story. We're seeing a very clear message from God to Eli that sin's pleasures are short-term and judgment is eternal. Sin's pleasures are short-term and judgment is eternal. Eli, you know, you and your sons enjoyed those choice portions of meat that were to be sacrificed to me as an expression of love and obedience by my people. Because you chose to do that, the judgment that is coming will be eternal for you and your descendants. You will beg just for a morsel of bread. You'll wish that your needs were, will be provided for, but they will not because you have chosen to feed those appetites that have led you down this path of judgment. And there's this decision that we're confronted with as it comes to our sin and that snare is around our foot holding us down, anchoring us, preventing us from fulfilling God's plans for our lives. Will we just stay chained to that rock? Crippled, unable to progress, having it affect our marriages, our careers, our children, people that we really love and care about? Or is it time to do something about it? And all you can do when you are chained to a rock with a bear claw on your leg is cry out for help. And that's exactly what God has planned for each one of us. That when we can't even reach a hand up to Him, we just say the name Jesus. And He reaches down a hand and He pulls us up out of the miry clay and He sets our feet on, on a solid rock and He cleanses us and He forgives us and He enables us to walk with Him. It's the shed blood of Jesus that accomplishes all that we need to overcome sin. 
And it's that daily decision to say, God, I'm going to live this confessional life before you. That whenever sin comes and whispers in my ear, just says, just take this little step. No one will know. It'll just be for today. That the Spirit of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, godly, and upright lives in this present age. Look around us. Read the newspaper headlines. 300 clergy harming their congregations and the families there. Those that are called to be the intermediaries to bring God's Word to His people. And now the, the church that is to be a place of community where we bear one another's burdens, where we rejoice with those that rejoice and mourn with those that mourn. Instead, they violated that very first principle of the Hippocratic Oath that doctors make. Do no harm! Hey, we don't even care if you know how to practice medicine in a way that helps somebody. Just don't hurt them any worse than they were when they came into your office. And we've got clergy that are harming the sheep, just as we do in this story. As we look at that, let's, be, let, let's respond with sorrow. Let's respond by, with weeping, with ashes and sackcloth and mourning. And let's cry out and say, God, bring a time of repentance to your bride. May this be a wake-up call as Eli brought to his own sons. It's a deal with the sin issue. Down this path is judgment and destruction. And then God came to Eli's own house said, I can't work with this sort of a vessel. I can only use clay that puts itself back on the potter's wheel and is able to be reshaped and reformed. And that's the challenge to us today as we're confronted with our sin to look at it for the ugly mess that it is and then to repent and to weep and cry out and say, God, spare me of that coming judgment. Forgive me for the way my sin has affected not just me, but my relationships with others. How it's tainted the bride of Christ. How it's made it difficult, if not impossible, for us to have any voice of authority in our culture today. And now we're seeing how sin has just grown more rampant and it's more tolerated all around us. Keeps us longer than we want to stay. So if sin's pleasures are short-term and judgment is eternal, That's the bad news. The good news is that the cleansing power of Jesus' blood is also eternal. And that verse that I quoted from 1 John 1, verse 9, just before that, in verse 7, it says, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. There's that daily walking with Jesus that says, I'm going to abide with you. I'm going to remain with you. I'm going to listen to your word. I'm going to allow you to be the king. You grab the wheel. You take the driver's seat. I'll just go where you lead. I'll follow. I'll submit. I'll hear and obey. And God says, I can work with a heart like that. And down that path is eternal life. Finally, we're going to uh, cover chapter 3 as well. This is uh, just a story of God now cementing and personalizing his call to Samuel as a young man as he begins to speak to him. And we're seeing the, the beginning really of his ministry in contrast to the sons of Eli. 
really these two paths where Eli's household is declining and Samuel is now rising as the messenger of God to his people. Now, the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. Don't miss the significance of those two opening verses. Once again, we're seeing this contrast between Eli and his house and Samuel. Under Eli, as the priest, there's no frequent, the the word of the Lord is rare. There's no frequent vision. Eli's eyesight is dim. He's not able to see. There's a double meaning in what's going on here. We've got a man who has now lost his ability to hear from the Lord, to see from him, and God is no longer showing up to Eli and to his household. And yet there's this glimmer of hope now as we turn to the story of Samuel, verse 3. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down, not in his own place like Eli was. Where's Samuel lying down? In the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. He's dwelling in God's presence as a young man. And then the Lord called Samuel. And he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli. And he said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I didn't call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down, and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again a third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And that's a beautiful prayer right there. be a great way to start each day. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as the other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Yeah, you think? But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? 
Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and also more if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And then the very next verse of chapter 4, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. There is this sense in which Eli had listened to that prophetic word that came to him, chapter 2, and he did have a respect for God. Not enough to actually re- repent and turn, and yet an awareness and a resolve that there actually is a God. There actually is judgment coming. This sin that took me further than I wanted to go, kept me longer than I wanted to stay, is now going to cost me more than I would be willing to pay. And he resolves to be under God. He knows that he is under God. Samuel was reluctant to bring this message from God to the person that God had directed the message to. Kind of like, it's not real fun as a pastor to get to talk about sin and judgment on a Sunday morning. I know none of you are going to go after church, hey brother, thank you for that great message. There will be no pats on the back today. Yeah, you know, I guess, like Samuel, I'm not that concerned about that because really it's, it's the authoritative Word of God. The whole truth and nothing but the truth right here that God brings with that message of judgment of sin. Also, the message of hope, of redemption through Christ. And all this judgment and dealing with sin in a just way is all part of God's plan of redemption. His plan A back from the beginning. As he created, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. That's the plan that God has for each of us, eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. Today, if you're stuck in that trap of sin, if you've slid further down that slippery slope than you had ever intended, today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of confession. Today is the day to no longer walk in darkness, but in the light, to fellowship with Christ Jesus. And the good news is you don't go it alone. There is a body of Christ here, brothers and sisters on the journey. Many of us would be happy and excited to pray with you today if you're saying today's the day to repent and to make Jesus the Lord of my life, which means saying you are authoritative. Your word is relevant. You have permission to radically revolutionize my heart and my mind and my life, and I yield to you, and God will honor a prayer like that. And he will come and deliver you and free you and set you on that path where instead of eternal judgment, you face the prospect of eternal life that begins today. And there's joy and there's hope and there's purpose.